Well, good morning. Uh, This morning we begin a series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a magisterial letter. It's been called the Grand Canyon of Scripture because in the brief scope of these six chapters of this letter, we have all the basic doctrines of Scripture. It's a wonderful letter. We'll be considering it now for some time. Before we read our passage this morning, though, let me just say this. Sometimes I remind the congregations I serve that it is the preacher's prerogative to change his mind. And that's a freedom that I use liberally. This is simply to say that sometimes uh, my sermon points are not in their final form when the bulletin goes to print on Thursday. I am still working on things, thinking on things, praying about things, and sometimes I'm changing things radically even late on Saturday night or early on Sunday morning. Well, the sermon points have changed a little bit. So if you're a note taker, let me give them to you in their final form. The first point is, let us sing of God's power in us. Point two, let us sing of God's purpose for us. And then three, and this one has changed from your notes, let us sing of God's preservation, not presence, but preservation of us. I think those three points summarize Paul's intended meaning of verses 1 and 2, which are the two verses that we're going to read this morning. But again, another change. I want to read verses 1 and 2 in their larger context to you this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Uh, Verses 3 through 14, although they're I don't know how many sentences in our English text. They're just one sentence in the Greek text. And the reason I want to read verses 1 and 2 in their larger context is I want you to hear, as we read these words, how Paul, in these opening verses, is literally singing the gospel. He's singing the gospel to his soul as he is suffering in prison, and he is singing the gospel to these Ephesians who are suffering hardship in Ephesus. So with those opening thoughts in mind, hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Him, We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the purpose, counsel of His will, so that we, whom 
were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's holy word. <clears throat> Let us pray. <clears throat> Eternal Father, whose dwelling place is the source of heavenly light, we ask that you would send forth your light and truth. Let every secret fear in our hearts might be consoled by your presence and goodness. Almighty Father, we ask that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit that we might know the joy of abiding in your presence. Grant to us the spirit of truth that we might dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said memorably and plainly that praise and prayer are the two oars with which we row our boat into the deep knowledge of God. In the opening verses of this letter, Paul is modeling that wisdom of praise joined to prayer for the Ephesians. Uh, verses 1 through 14 read like one grand celebration of God's blessings to us in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing from a prison cell, we believe, in Rome, his Circumstances are dismal, but his spirit is exuberant as he sings the good news of the gospel. Listen again to the gospel notes in this prayer of praise. Believers have been chosen by the Father for salvation, predestined to adoption, redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, given that, and that our salvation is the accomplishment of the Godhead, each person performing his work, is it scarcely possible that God will somehow fail to give his children all that they really need to do what he has called them to do? No, it's not possible. It's a no-brainer. That is our hope, and the Ephesians need that hope. Uh, Ephesus was the major city of the Roman province of Asia, which we call Turkey today. Ephesus was large. It was well populated by ancient standards. It boasted a public theater the size of a modern football stadium. The great temple of Diana stood in Ephesus. So magnificent was its size that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was served by hundreds of temple prostitutes. And Paul came to Ephesus briefly on his second missionary journey and then for an extended three-year period on his third. And God blessed his preaching with remarkable fruitfulness. We read in Acts that all Asia heard the word of the Lord from Ephesus. Both Jews and Greeks, a faithful church was established and some of the members of that church remember that day. We have it recorded in Acts 19 when 
They were manhandled, they were dragged into the theater by hostile craftsmen who supported the Temple Diana tourist trade. The occult and idolatry were big business in Ephesus. And important businessmen were feeling the growing church threatened their financial bottom line. And so fearful of violence by the economic and political powers that be, the Ephesian believers needed encouragement. They needed to hear Paul sing this song of hope in the superior power of God. And you and I are like them. We need to hear that message of hope as well. I mean, the immensity of the challenges that we face, both inside of us and outside of us, can make us want to run from God's calling. Sometimes we say the challenge is too great. I can't do this any longer. So how is it that we face the challenges that are greater than our personal resources? Well, verses 1 and 2 challenge us to join our praises to our prayers with Paul here and sing of God's superior blessings, which are ours in Christ Jesus. Let us sing of three gospel blessings this morning. First, let us sing of God's power in us. I mean, in this world, you and I need nothing less, nothing less than the very power of God working in us and for us. And God has promised that power to those who belong to Jesus Christ. I mean, in verse 19, Paul prays that the Ephesians would be confident that the immeasurable power of God works for those who believe. In chapter 3, Paul will pray again that the Ephesians would be strengthened by the power of God, which is able to do immeasurably more than we can even ask or think. Without that assurance, my friends, that God's power is working in us and for us, overruling all for our good, you and I are anxious, we are driven, we are controlling, we are angry, we are fearful, we are fretful. I mean, consider Paul's own situation here. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Paul's cross-cultural ministry of preaching and planting churches has borne unimaginable fruit. Yet even now, Paul is in a Roman prison. And well might he have said, I can't do this. I mean, doesn't my imprisonment prove that the obstacles are too great? And yet Paul prays and sings of God's superior power. You see, praising God in our prayers for His superior power working in us and for us lifts our hearts up in hope. And there are two sources of God's power referred to in verse 1 that make our hearts sing. And this first one is the power of God's Word The power of God's Word. Paul writes this letter as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, by the will of God. The word apostle can mean various things in the New Testament, but it's used in Paul's case to mean that the risen Jesus Christ uniquely appeared to him and sent him to preach the good news of salvation by faith alone in Jesus. Other apostles... Other apostles were called by Jesus during his earthly ministry in the flesh. But Christ called Paul to be an apostle after he had risen from the dead. 
Now, what's that mean for us? It means this. It means this. As an apostle, Paul so uniquely represents the Lord Jesus who sent him that his message is Christ's very message. And so when Paul speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christ himself speaks through Paul. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that he speaks not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Now, do we recognize the wonderful privilege we have in studying this letter? You see, we have in this letter the very words of the risen and reigning Jesus Christ to us. Through the Apostle Paul, Paul's letter to the Ephesians isn't like other books written by mere men or women. Instead, we have in this letter the living word of God to us. And my friends, do we want anything less than that? I mean, here we are facing opposition and resistance and deprivation of all sorts, but God's gift of His Word to us means He hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left us to kind of fend for ourselves. You see, God's presence dwells in His Word. And as we take it up and rightly understand it and meditate on it and receive its truth into our hearts, we know the Almighty One whose power is working for us and in us. We are not just casualties alongside the road of life. Instead, the sufficiency of God's Word makes us more than conquerors through God's power who is at work in us. The power of God's Word. And then the power of God's will. Paul is an apostle, he says, by the will of God. The will of God meant a great deal to Paul. Go to the book of Acts. There we first meet Paul, then called Saul, as the arch persecutor of the church. We read of Paul ravaging the church, entering house church after house church, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, beating them, punishing them in the synagogues, trying to make them blaspheme. But the power of God's will changed Paul. It transformed him. I mean, not only would Paul never have been an apostle apart from God's will, he would never have been a Christian either. I mean, left to himself, apart from the gracious, powerful will of God, Paul fought God, and Paul attempted to destroy Christ's church. And the same is true of us. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. We need nothing less than the very power of God's will raising us up from spiritual death to new life in order to be saved. Jesus raised Lazarus from his tomb. And in the same way, we are in need of this life-giving Spirit of God to give us new minds and new hearts and the gift of faith in Jesus unto the salvation of our souls as Lazarus was dead in the tomb until the Spirit gave him life. So we are dead in sin unless the powerful, life-giving Spirit of God raises us up to new life and faith in Jesus. Has God been pleased to do that for you? 
If so, we are in the safe, powerful arms of God. Just as my very young daughter years ago looked at the giant oak tree in our front yard through the wrong end of the binoculars, reducing its size to these little sapling proportions. So we reduce our powerful God to pygmy proportions in our minds. The late D.M. Lloyd-Jones says, quote, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric, having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and wretched and spend our time in shallows in miseries. But you see, singing in prayer of God's power, working in us and for us, lifts our spirits up. And then second, we must let us sing of God's purpose for us. Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. First Paul, in verse 1, extols the blessing of God's power, and then now he extols what God has made of us by his power. We are saints of God, literally holy ones. That in a nutshell, I think, expresses God's purpose for our lives. Now, this may shock you. I just want to be very honest with you, but there was a time when, as a young believer at the University of Wyoming, this whole matter of this, this whole subject of holiness was not entirely attractive to me. There was this saying, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. And I knew some nice ranch girls who did. You know, it's kind of like Toto, we're not in Tennessee anymore, we're in Wyoming. But you see, with the advantage of time, I as a parent, I better appreciate now the concerns expressed in a statement like that. But here's my point, and this is very important. If your idea of holiness consists only or maybe largely of obeying the norms of polite church society, then the beauty of gospel holiness will be lost on you. Gospel holiness is a beautiful thing, and it represents God's purpose for all His children. That's something I needed to learn. First, God has made us holy. God has made us holy. That's one truth implied by this title, saints. God has made us holy. Calling believers saints is Paul's usual practice in his New Testament letters. I mean, for example, go to the church of Corinth. Go to this struggling, immature church of Corinth. And Paul writes in his first letter to them, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. You see, one of the glories of the gospel is that in the New Testament, Christians, young and old, rich and poor, wise and simple, are saints. Saints, not a description of some super spiritual condition that we must somehow attain to by our efforts. Instead, sainthood is the privilege, it is the status of all believers the moment they believe in Jesus. 
And why is that? It's because you see the Spirit of God has consecrated you and set you apart and reserved you for God's special purpose. You see, that is the privilege of every child of God. Just as a musical tuning fork will resonate with a particular note played on an instrument, so the child of God's new heart resonates now with the things of God, the things that God loves, and the purposes of God for our lives. And so following hard after the Lord, even obeying Him when His will crosses our own, that's not settling for less that you might have gotten by going your own way. Holiness is not doing what we least want to do. That is the unrenewed mind's misunderstanding. For the child of God who is now a saint, the way of the Lord is the path of true life. It's the path of joy. Serve the Lord with gladness, come into His presence with singing, the psalmist sings. It's a tragedy that so many Christians, so many professing Christians are either confused about this or believe that the ways of unbelieving culture yield more happiness and fulfillment than the ways of God. And something more, and it's very significant, Paul calls believers in places like Ephesus or Corinth saints. When the politics, the philosophy, the economics, the religion of those cities was dominated by sin. And again, our situation is no different. When we consider the pervasiveness of sin around us and remaining within us, we can ask a bit despairingly at times, is it really possible? Is it really possible to live for God and for His purpose that reaches into eternity? And the answer is yes. Not by our might or by our power, but by God's Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Our challenges always seem overwhelming, but the Spirit of God within us is more than a match. And something else we can say about this purpose, God is making us holy. This is also implied by this status we have of being saints. The saints in Ephesus, says, are faithful. By the ongoing work of God's Spirit, they're full of trust. They are full of love that leads to obedience. God the Spirit is transforming us increasingly into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. That is God's glorious purpose for our lives. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ, Paul reassures the Philippians, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul reassures these struggling, immature Corinthian believers. May God empower our repentance from setting our first love on the shiny trinkets of this world which only leave us empty and anxious and fulfilled. He has destined us to a higher purpose and joy which is found in Christ-likeness. Again, D.M. Lloyd-Jones says, you cannot be a saint and a Christian without being separated in some radical sense from the world. You do not belong to it any longer. You are in it, but you are not of it. There is a separation which has taken place in your mind, in your outlook, in your heart, in your conversation, in your behavior. You are essentially a different person. 
The Christian, he says, is not a worldly person. He is not governed by the world in its mind and outlook. God's purpose for his saints makes us sing. And finally, let us sing of God's preservation of us. Child of God, at the most basic level, who are you? I mean, at the most basic level, who are you? Well, at the most basic level, you are in Christ, Paul says in verse 1. You are in Christ. That is ground zero of your identity. You are in Christ. The phrase in Christ or in Him or the equivalent occurs nine times in just the first chapter of Ephesians. It occurs something like 164 different times in all of Paul's writings. Clearly, this truth of being in Christ was very precious to Paul as it should be to us. And the Bible uses different images to teach us what's involved here. Being in Christ is compared in the Bible to the union between a building and its foundation. It's compared to the union between a head and its body. It's compared to the union between a branch and its trunk. It's compared to the union between a husband and a wife. You see, child of God, your union with Christ provides you with the highest hope possible. It means that you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to God. That's your security. In and through your Savior, God has wedded Himself to you in love forever. You belong to God, who chose you in love for Himself before the foundation of the world. You belong to God, who paid a mighty price to unite you in fellowship to Himself. Even the death of His much-loved Son on that wretched cross for our sins. You belong to God, whose Spirit now dwells in you, so that you may say confidently, Greater is He who is in me than He is in the world. The greatest possible incentive for us to persevere in faith when things are going hard against us is this. God will be with us and God will preserve us in this loving, life-giving union we have through, with Him through our Savior Jesus. You see, when we are opposed, this hope makes us sing. When we are confused and befuddled, this hope makes us sing. When we feel all alone and fearful, this hope makes us sing. God is with us. God is preserving us, and God will bring us through. And because of that, we know God's grace and peace as an ongoing reality, verse 2 says. There is this biblical order to these gifts of the Spirit of God. Grace is the beginning of the gospel Peace is the end of the gospel. God preserves us with His peace. God preserves us with His peace. What is this peace? This peace is not tranquil circumstances. It's not a feeling of quiet. This is the shalom of the Old Testament. This is the well-being, the sense of well-being because of our union with God. If we know that we belong to God and that His good and wise purpose for our lives cannot be defeated either by our sin or by our world, then we can know this well-being 
in the midst of trying circumstances, we know an eye of peace in the hurricane of our difficulties. When H.P. Spafford sailed over that watery gray where his family had drowned when their ocean liner sank, he was able to write these memorable words. We sing them in that great hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, that's the peace of God. And then God preserves us with His grace. The grace of God is the way to the peace of God. Grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor, and that is true, Rick Phillips says. But it's not going far enough, he says. Grace is God's favor to us when we have merited the opposite. We have merited God's hatred. We have merited His wrath and condemnation. But God, in His grace, pardons, accepts us as righteous, adopts us as His child. This He does for every single sinner, no matter how great their sin, when they embrace Christ as Savior. How could God possibly do something like that? It's only because God in grace gave His much-loved Son over to judgment, the judgment we deserve on the cross. In love, God judged His Son in the place of anyone who will receive Him. Have you? Why on earth wouldn't you? And if you have Christ then walk in grateful faithfulness before God. You see, the grace of God's Spirit works in each of God's children to complete the good work He has begun in those who believe. God's grace preserves us with peace. And in that hope, we join our praises to our prayers and we sing to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this wonderful truth that Paul presents to us, even here in just the first two verses of this magisterial letter. We thank you for this truth that no matter how great our sin may be, if only we will receive Jesus freely available to us. We are in Christ. And being in Christ, we enjoy this permanent, life-giving union with you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us when we are opposed, maybe on every side by all sorts of difficulties, to sing to you, to join our praises to our prayers and sing to you. To sing to you of your power at work, in us, of your purpose for us, of your preservation of us unto eternity. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.